Hi, everyone. My name is Roni Firon, and this is The Bigger Picture, where we sit down with experts to hear about their journeys, their insights, and the big ideas that drive them. Stay tuned for today's episode. In today's episode, we discuss the philosophy of free will and determinism with Professor Daniel Levy, a cognitive neuroscientist and the Dean of the School of Psychology at IDC. Daniel's research focuses on understanding the processes of the human mind, specifically on different aspects of memory and attention. Notably, Daniel began his explorations of psychology through the humanities and the study of philosophy, leading to much exploration around the philosophy of consciousness and free will. He received his PhD in cognitive psychology from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and did his postdoctoral fellowships on human memory at the University of California in San Diego and Barilan University. He's also taught cognitive neuroscience at the Weizmann Institute. To this day, he remains fascinated by the integration of psychology and philosophy and has written about the neuroscience of free will, where he gives his unique take on the matter by integrating neurobiology with one of the most pressing questions in the study of philosophy, which is, do we have free will? If you want to learn more about how neuroscience can help us settle the debate between free will and determinism, this episode is definitely for you. So Daniel, first of all, thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. It's my pleasure. I'd love if you can tell the audience a bit more about how you came to study neuroscience, since I know that's not where your journey started. Yeah, in fact, my journey started far away from neuroscience and from empirical science in general. But coming from a background of religious life and concern with spirituality, I discovered that traditional religious categories of thinking were not what was leading me to places that I was interested in being in or, or belonged. And over the course of time, I turned to the general study of philosophy to try to understand more about the nature of consciousness and about the way we hold knowledge and also about the way we use language to express our beliefs, opinions. And over the course of time, I found that even philosophy was not giving me the kind of answers that I really needed. And it took me a while, but I realized that an empirical approach to these questions was going to be the one that I needed to take in order to find answers that were satisfying to me. That's really incredible. So before we dive in, um, today we're going to speak a bit about the philosophy of free will. So before we do that, I'd like for us to define a few terms. Could you give the audience a bit of an overview of these two terms, free will and determinism? So, you know, like sort of giving the dictionary definitions of what is free will and what is determinism, or even giving the definitions from the Encyclopedia of Philosophy, that's not going to cut it. <laughs> because even if, you know, there is this consensus among serious scholars who have thought deeply and pondered the meaning of these terms, that doesn't satisfy people. That's not going to 
address our individual concerns. So I'll say that understanding free will is understanding people's desire to be autonomous, to be agents, to do things on their own, not to be under the control of others, not to be under the control of other phenomena, not just other people. And I think that that kind of need for autonomy resonates deeply with pretty much everybody. So free will is easy. Free will is easy. Determinism is a little harsher because determinism, you can imagine this really grumpy old guy, you know, sitting there and saying, well, you might have an illusion that you have free will, but I'm telling you that nothing of the sort could be true. You know, everything you do, everything you say, everything you think has been determined by a long series of events which occurred thousands and millions and perhaps billions of years before you were a gleam in your father's eye. That's very distressing. I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I would like to believe that I'm an autonomous being and that I have free will and that I, I make my own decisions. So if that's our definition for free will and determinism, can you take us through a bit of the classic arguments around each of them? Right. So we've defined them in, uh, in the way we see them right now, but kind of to get a little bit of a background of what are the classic philosophical arguments for each. Right. So, you know, I perhaps a bit too flippant about not giving definitions of things. And we do need to have some concepts in our minds when we're trying to figure out what these things are. So I do want to say that sort of underlying most discussions of free will in the philosophical literature is this notion that free will involves being able to have done otherwise. That if you found yourself in a certain circumstance, a certain situation, and you acted in one way when you had two options available to you, well, you could have decided to do that, but you could have decided to take the road less traveled by. And that seems to be what's important about this notion of free will, this notion that there are options and that there are choices. Now, the simplest argument in favor of saying, yes, we do have free will, we could have opted to do otherwise than we did, is our experience of choice. What do I want for lunch today? Pizza or falafel? Um, falafel, right? Didn't I have a choice? Don't I have free will? Didn't I, did somebody force me to choose falafel? Right. Our immediate experience is that of free will, that right. we can make our own choices, that there's this field of options in front of us, and that we are the active agent deciding between these. Right. And the people who are relying on that sort of intuition that we do have choice, take it a step further and say that from the perspective of moral philosophy, from the perspective of ethics. How can we speak about ethics or morality or responsibility of people for their actions if they don't have free will to decide what to do? If you don't have free will to decide to steal this book or not steal this book, then how can we hold you morally or ethically responsible for thievery? If you don't have responsibility for 
committing genocide or not committing genocide, in other words, it wasn't up to you, then what are we talking about over here? Right. There seems to be a very important ethical implication. The moment we, the moment we decide that there is no free will and that everything is determined, then how can I be held accountable for my actions? Right. So what do you think about that? So I certainly understand where that's coming from. But if we're going to be able to make any progress in increasing the amount of moral behavior in the world, I think we need to look at the truth directly right in the eyes and say, we've not been thinking about this in the right way. Okay, so that's an interesting point. If we expect everyone to have free will and for everyone to be able to make their own decisions, and if they didn't make the right decision or a moral decision, then they just decided to be immoral. That doesn't take into account that some people stronger than them, you you know, so to speak, that they're not really able to make moral decisions and that we need to look at this truth in the face to be able to arrive at a more moral society. Yeah. So I'm going to agree with you 90%. Okay. Um, You said some people don't have the ability to do Ah. because it's better than them. (laughs) And all I'm saying is Nobody. nobody, (laughs) nobody has that ability. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So if I'm making moral decisions, then it's just sheer luck in terms of the way I've been determined. The way you will behave in situations which are considered to require moral decisions will be purely a function of your human heritage up to that point in time and who you are when you are faced with the prospect of acting one way or another way is very much a factor of all the things who make you who you are in the sense of yourself and your identity. So that's where the questions of free will and the questions of self are sort of inextricably intertwined. Okay. Before the sense of self, who I am is actually determined by genetic material, right? My human heritage thus far. So let's talk a little bit about self because that will turn out to be the sort of key to understanding free will and determinism. So who are you, Roni, at this moment in life? Who am I, Daniel, you know, at this point in life? Well, who we are at this time is a function of two processes. The first process has to do with our heredity, the genetic makeup that we acquired from our parents before we were born, the different processes which affected our genetic potential on the biological level, the whole world of epigenetics, of the factors that determine which genes are expressed at different points in our development, both before birth and after birth. All of these biological processes, which are determined by biological factors of DNA and of the environment in which any living thing develops, those are the cards we're dealt. All right? that's, the, that's how we start off. And the sort of new insight that we have from the modern science of molecular genetics, and especially the world of epigenetics, is that this is not a one-time process. It doesn't start 
only with the DNA that we receive from our parents, but there are a lot of biological factors that can continue to influence the genetic unfolding of who we are during the course of life. So that's one set of processes. The other set of processes, which is also biological, because everything about us is biological, the other set of processes has to do with our experience in the broadest sense. So there's nature and nurture. The nature is what we said belonging to the world of genetics and epigenetics, and the nurture is absolutely everything that happens to us during the course of our lives. And that really unfolds in two ways. One way is what we said before about epigenetics, about how the environment influences the genetic development. But the other part of this has to do with the way experiences that we have transform our brains and our nervous system in general as we go on even above and beyond the level of the genetics. So that's an idea of neuroplasticity, right? Like the kind of rewiring of the brain in response to experiences, right? And on the other hand, we had the epigenetic level where our environment creates different genetic expression. So we have these two levels working with us. Yeah, so these are two interesting kinds of biological processes which are dynamic and which are changing who we are on a millisecond by millisecond level every single moment we're still alive. From the moment that we begin to receive information about the environment around us on the neural level, which can start before birth, right? Babies who, some, are, after they're born, respond more to their mother's voice than to other voices. Well, it's because they were hearing before they were born, right, through the amniotic fluid. But certainly the minute that we come out into the, into the air and uh, begin breathing and, and acting in the world, the clock is ticking, the memories are being made, and they're being made in many different ways. And what you call neuroplasticity is also the process of memory. Just like our immune system has a memory for the pathogens to which it's been exposed, that's one kind of memory, we also know that we have conscious memories, our ability to talk about the different things that have happened to us and to recollect them and to re-experience them. But there are many other kinds of changes that happen to our brains as a result of experience that form unconscious memories, memories which affect the way we respond even without conscious recollection of the events that we're responsible for them. So these things are sculpting our nature all the time. And now you have to decide what to have for lunch. <laughs> okay. But there's this idea of, you know, the, the genes load the gun, but we pull the trigger, right? That we still, and in that analogy, we still have some sort of choice. We're still, you know, some people might say that we're active agents interacting with our environment. So do you think that, you know, just in terms of the neuroplasticity or, um, you know, your internal environment that, for instance, your thoughts can influence your internal environment, do you think that our thoughts are also determined by all of these processes and that we're not the ones thinking them, in a sense? Well, we are thinking them, but who are we? 
And okay. why are we thinking them? And it should be fairly obvious that at any given moment, we could be thinking positive thoughts or negative thoughts. Why is it that some people f tend to think more positively and other people feel, you know, think more negatively? Well, I would guess that the people who think negatively were first of all born with a genetic profile that makes them more sensitive to threat throughout life, and therefore they're more prone to anxiety and maybe depression. And maybe they've also had experiences which have taught them that uh, they need to be afraid of the world or suspicious about the world and to be constantly concerned with, concerned with what might happen to them. If neither of those things were the case, well, they'll probably think positive thoughts. So who's doing the thinking and what they're thinking is also very much a factor of what went before. Okay, so our sense of self or our identity really is the sum total of all of these biological processes. Everything that we've experienced, everything that we've inherited, and really it's almost an emergent uh, property, right? The sense of self, this identity. But really, it's just an amalgam of all of these things put together. So that's a wonderful buzzword. And I think it's <laughs> something that really is worth, is worth um, being, being thought about a little bit. Okay. What is an emergent property? From what I can tell, an emergent property is we have all of these things happening, right? We, we have all of these levels that we can look at genetically, molecularly, uh, neurally, uh, on the level of the environment, the interpersonal, social, right? All of these things. And my sense of self is just this thing that emerges, right? This um, on the stage of consciousness, um, all of these thoughts and how I perceive myself. But really, it's nothing more than something that emerges from all of these things put together. So, so you're, you're being very kind okay. to people who say emergent properties okay. because... What do they say? Maybe what our listeners should know yes. is that a lot of people use the term emergent properties to talk about a unpredictable or non-intuitive phenomenon that cannot be predicted, determined, calculated from what we know about pre-existing or prior conditions. It, we, 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 we don't consider that um, uh, when we crack an egg and put it into a frying pan, the fact that it turns into a fried egg or scrambled eggs or whatever we happen to be making at the time, we don't can say, oh, scrambled, being scrambled is an emergent property of this egg because we know about the nature of protein that makes up the eggs and what heat does to proteins. So it makes a lot of sense. Maybe people didn't always know about the nature of protein. And for, their, them, for, their, for, for, the, for them, seeing a fried egg was, was an absolute miracle. How did this liquid, you know, gooey thing become all of a sudden this solid thing? Well, science has discovered what underlies the phenomenon of fried eggs. So the question is, what is consciousness? Is consciousness or free will or self or all these other really mysterious things? Are we talking about phenomena which cannot be sufficiently explained by what we know about the prior state of the world before the phenomena that we're trying to understand, or that it can. So emergent property, people say, you, 
free will, consciousness, self, these are things which are so amazing and so wonderful and so mysterious, no amount of prior scientific information would enable you to understand this miracle that we're seeing right now. And people who are not emergent property theorists say, uh-uh, right? Maybe we don't have all the information we need about everything we want to know about the human condition, but given enough time and enough hard work, we will be able to explain things on the basis of prior facts. So, so that's the issue over here. Because if who you are at this moment in time is a function of all of your genetic heritage, plus everything that you've experienced, plus the interaction, interaction between them that works through epigenetics, well, you have explained everything. Okay, so there's something in this argument that with empiricism, right, the way, the way that I understand empiricism is what we experience through our senses, what we can observe through our senses, that is what we can know as true, right? This objectivity of the empirical impression. But what I'm hearing from you is that empiricism is more kind of negates this intuition, as you call it, right? This immediate experience of free will. But it looks at empiricism as focused solely on the physical substrates, right? And in this case, what's happening in the brain, the genetics. And these are things that we can't directly see. So in some sense, it's not empirical, but it is empirical in the sense that it's based on physical things that we can measure, right, with, with objective tools. But we don't have this immediate experience, which is, I think, a more uh, classic definition of empiricism. So my question is, with that in mind, and with everything that you've said so far about the biologically determined factors, right, our dispositions, everything that creates who we are, why within that don't you see any room for free will or for choice, right? Because we can still have a lot of things being biologically determined, but still I feel that there's room for, for our subjective experience, all of our subjective experiences, where we feel that we have free will, where we experience a plane of choices a field of choices, and we feel that we can choose between different options, right? So, so I'd love if you could shed a little bit of light on that. Yeah. So I think that it's important for us to understand why this is a matter of concern to us, because that's, I think, where the answer is going to be. Okay. The philosopher Daniel Dennett mm -hmm. wrote a book called Elbow Room, the varieties of free will worth wanting. Okay. And I think that the question, right, or the, or the title uh, that poses the question is exactly the answer. Why do we want free will? Why is this important to us? What are we looking for over here? So an important contribution of psychology in general, not only of neuroscience, but the, the entire discipline of psychology is all about enabling people to understand that sometimes their intuitions are tricking them. Okay. What they think they 
want, what they think they believe, the reasons they think they act in a certain way, the explanations they give for their behaviors. Uh-uh. I think also that, you know, psychoanalytic theories have given us this view that we're not masters in our own house, right? There's other things that are driving us that where we think we're making a conscious decision, really it's unconscious motives kind of steering the ship. Right. And that's a really important insight. And these are the kind of insights that require a point of view which is outside of ourselves. And the reason that introspectionist philosophy or psychology, while it's something that contributes materials to be analyzed and questions that need to be answered, cannot provide the answers. I'm going to say it's not capable of providing any of the answers. And that's why we need sort of the insights of looking at psychology from the perspective of neuroscience and biology and the perspective of looking at neuroscience from the perspective of physics and the perspective of looking at physics from the perspective of mathematics and the perspective of looking at mathematics from the perspective of psychology. <laughs> so it, yeah. it is circular, yeah. but, but we need these multiple perspectives in order to make any progress in getting beyond the blinders that prevent us from seeing the reality of the world. Okay, so let's for, let's look at the this level of analysis of uh, neuroscience, right? And how, how do you see neuroscience helping us answer this question of, are we masters in our own house? Yeah. So the first perspective that's helpful is actually the way that neuroscience is an expression of evolution, right? Nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution. This is Theodosius Dobzhansky, a great biologist, once said, and it's one of the most insightful statements, I think, of science in general. When we try to understand people, we need to remember all the time that we did not evolve, we did not develop uh, in order to be able to think great thoughts, in order to be able to um, make sensitive comments, to be able to have uh, moving emotions, we developed to survive and reproduce. And that whenever we're looking at a phenomenon of human behavior and human nature, we need to ask ourselves, how does this activity or, or, or um, trait contribute to people's adaptivity? How does it make them better able to function in the world, to survive and thrive and do all the things that they need to do just to pass on their genes to the next generation? We don't want to think that. We don't like thinking that. But unless we think about that, we really can't understand what makes people tick. So we know that being subject to the authority and control of other people is really bad for us. Nobody wants to be a slave. Nobody wants to live in an oppressive regime that determines what they're going to do, what they're going to think, what they're going to say. Right? Those are things that enable others to take advantage of us, to advance their own adaptivity and survival at the expense of ours. 
So clearly we want to have free will because we don't want anyone else telling us what to do. Because usually if another person tells us what's to, what to do, it's in their interest and not in ours. Okay? Maybe we'll make an exception for our mothers. <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> so that's why we want free will. That makes a lot of sense. Um, does that mean that we have free will on the level of that everything we decide is sui generis and not a factor of the things that shaped us and created ourselves as they are today? No, no. So once we start understanding why free will is, you know, the, the idea of free will in the simplest sense of that you are an autonomous being and you're not under the control of other humans or other animals or other machines or robots or whatever it is, that enables us to understand why free will is so dear to us, so valuable to us. Having understood why it's valuable to us, now we can begin to understand what is the varieties, what are the varieties of free will worth wanting? What do we really want? And, and again, I can only speak for myself, but what I suggested is that if at any given point in time, what we do is a full expression of who we are, that's just about as good as it gets. That's the free will I think we really want. Okay, to be able to fully express our nature, right? Yes. So we've spoken a bit about this already. I'm very interested in personality. And a lot of the idea of personality is that a lot of things are biologically determined, right? That we have these natures, these dispositions that we're born with, and really that. A lot of these things are somewhat fixed and that there is still a range, though, that I like to leave open when I'm conceptualizing this for free will and for choice. So I have my certain dispositions, but I still have a range of character development that I can pursue. So I, I find that view very healthy, right? First of all, understanding our predetermined, you know, our temperaments, what we were born with. But then on the other hand, still leaving wiggle room for for personality development, for working on certain weaknesses, right? Understanding our personality better and being able to to develop from there. Now, I I wanted to know why you think that this view of leaving room for, you know, what I like to call character development, right? So leaving this room up for free will and for choice, why do you think that's detrimental on the individual level and also on the societal level? Yeah. So you can t actually take that in two, two directions or maybe come to it from, from two directions. One direction has to do with uniqueness, with individuality, if you're talking about personality. Mm -hmm. Um. I don't think that we feel comfortable with the idea that we could be exactly the same as somebody else in our beliefs, desires, inclinations, values. We want to be unique. We want to be individual. Um, and when you talk about biological determinism, it makes us feel very uncomfortable. Among other things, we say, well, if somebody else has the same biology as I do, well, th there's no difference between me and them, and then who am I as a person? So 
the value of individuality and the beauty of individuality is something that we can celebrate, I think, while understanding that our individuality can be determined by the forces of nature. Mm -hmm. Among other things, because the interactions between the genetic, epigenetic, and experiential elements are so complex that nobody is going to be exactly like anybody else, just from a combinatorial perspective. Right. So we are who we are. We don't have to worry about that. Whew. <laughs> One less thing to worry about. Now, in terms of morality, in terms of society, and from my perspective, in terms of engineering a society which provides the greatest good for the greatest number of people, I think that we will do the greatest good for humanity by being very honest about people's motivations and about the range of possibility of what we can expect or, or um, what we can demand of people to do. Expecting that people will have a altruistic nature that they'll always be empathic, that they will always act according to abstract ethical principles, you're shot down before you took off. Yeah. That's not going anywhere. Um, that's exactly the way humanity has tried to run its institutions until this point, and it's shown to be col colossal failure. With this kind of blind optimism, right, that um, we are the better angels of our nature, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So I take the opposite approach. Let's assume that um, people are nasty, brutish, and short. Yeah. And I mean, it's easy for me to say, <laughs> but uh, the listeners don't see. He's very tall, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so, and okay. And let's say, you know what? People are always going to look out for their individual best interests, even when they're acting altruistically. There is a personal benefit that they're gaining from that, certainly when they're acting aggressively, certainly when they're being violent, when they're being uh, uh, opportunistic towards other people. That's what we should assume. Now, given these sort of negative-sounding aspects of human nature, how are we going to take this into account and create societal institutions that will protect ourselves from ourselves. It requires meta-thinking. We have to take one step back from our immediate inclinations, one step back from our intuitions, one step back from our responsiveness, from our reactivity to situations, and look at ourselves objectively from the outside. And we can do this. Right? Just like in psychology in general, it's very difficult for even the best psychologist to, to treat herself or himself, but they can do a great job with somebody else. We need that perspective. And I think that science and philosophy give us that perspective that enable us to take that step back and to say, given the range of interests that people have and that they're always going to be looking out for themselves, how do we create structures in society that will make that win-win situations and not situations in which some take advantage and others are taken advantage of. So looking 
that human reality, the nature of people in the eye, and working with it, I think is the only way of going forward. I have to agree with that. I mean, it uh, goes back to this Jungian idea, right, of there's always a shadow side. And even when we have good intentions, you know, they can have uh, negative consequences. But this idea that we, first of all, everything has a positive and a negative, and that that goes for our natures as well, right? We have the light side and we have the shadow side. So with that said, what do you think, um, what do you think are specific things in our nature that we need to take into account, right? You mentioned a bit about um, the evolutionary instincts, right, that drive us. But how, how do you, how do you see, um, you know, these different types of natures interacting and how can societal structures really help guide us into a better direction? So there, there are so many different places in which these kinds of things can play out. Um, and some of them are cases in which what an analysis of patterns of human behavior would recommend might go against some commonly held beliefs and values in Western society, and that's what makes this controversial. Okay, th that's a good place to start. W where today in Western society do you think we're, we're turning a blind eye and that we hold certain assumptions that are incorrect, right, regarding human nature and that we can see that it's having a negative effect? So just a few examples like that. Yeah, so um, let's, let's take two cases. One case has to do with the way we think families should be structured, where in modern Western society t today, the regnant idea of what a family is is the nuclear family. And again, there are different flavors of this. There is the heteronormative nuclear family, the non-heteronormative nuclear family. But let's assume that we're talking about a nuclear family in which there are two parents and a certain number of children. Right. They all follow the same kind of model. Right. And that that is the unit that should live together, that you, we, we you know, consider it to be really important that children be able to grow up with parents who look out for their interests. And clearly, children need to be taken care of um, for many years, especially in the culture that we have today, before they're capable of being independent. But... In most Western societies, the idea that family should be something much larger than the nuclear unit is something which is considered a story of the past. But ever since, um, I, what was it, Hillary Clinton, who told us that it takes a village to raise a child, or whoever was originally responsible for that statement, it becomes clearer and clearer that the nuclear family as the basic unit is failing us and that it's very dysfunctional, and that it's creating a tremendous amount of suffering, and that the kind of institutions that we've developed in our societies, like geographical mobility for the purpose of career advancement, are taking a tremendous toll in terms of stability of families, in terms of children's development, in terms of well-being on any number of levels. So that's something which I think needs to be rethought 
in, in a major way. And again, this is something uh, totally unrelated to all the things we talked about before on determinism and free will. And but I think it's kind. It's, um, it, you know, if we if we really take a look at these, you know, determined biologically determined uh, natures, and if we understand that we can't, we we don't have a free will to the extent where we can just decide to have different natures, right? That we are humans, and we we do have certain instincts that need to be taken into account, and even on the primal level, right? What you're what you're alluding to is this more of a tribal need for uh, for community, and we've advanced a lot of of things in society today, like the geographical mobility, where you know a young couple can move across the country. You know, if we're talking about America, right, to a different coast, completely away from uh, where they grew up, from the grandparents, and start a family, and you know each one has a career that might have to move them around and bounce them around. And we assume that this nuclear family unit is sufficient uh, for everyone involved. But really, um, maybe that's not the case. And if we look back a bit into our, you know, evolutionary pasts, then we, we can see why these things don't work. Right. So, so that's, you know, an, an example of where we're blinded to our current experiential reality, the, you know, the nature of, of that reality and how it should not be taken for granted. Now, it could be at the end people will say, you know, uh, it's true that there are these terrible prices that we pay for departing from the traditional social structures of extended families, clans, tribes, um, you know, hunter-gatherer communities in which human nature seemed to develop, it's worth it for us to pay that price. But nobody has really thought about that sufficiently, certainly not on the level of the entire society, and probably not even on the level of individuals. So this is the kind of, of introspection which I think needs to happen in order for us to cure some of the ills of contemporary society. Amazing. I mean, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you uh, before was how, you know, having this outlook of biological determinism, how has it benefited your life? And from one of the things that I'm hearing is that really it's allowing us to live more in harmony with our human natures, that there, there is something a lot ho- more hopeful and a lot more, a lot more right to live that way. So I would like to hear a little bit more also of how, how you think this has benefited you, um, this way of looking at things. So that's a, you know, a little bit difficult for me to be honest about in, in uh, a public interview. Okay. Um, and I, uh, I would need to think about what I'd feel comfortable in sharing okay, on no, that level. Only, only what you're comfortable yeah. sharing with us. But, but I'll say that, I mean, there, there really are so many um, walks of life in which this kind of perspective is important. I'll, I'll give one that's a little bit um, sort of difficult to talk about, but it, more universal rather than something that personal issues for me. 
Um, we also have not yet really made peace with the biological nature of interactions of men and women or of, let's say, of people with the other people with, to whom they are sexually attracted in general in the context of the separation between the personal and the public, between work and, let's say, school spheres on one hand and individual interactions on the other hand. And we're paying the price for that. You know, the, the, the um, greater awareness that people have today of sexual harassment in the workplace and in educational settings and in the pub all kinds of public uh, or communal frameworks. Um, part of that is a function of the transition from traditional societal structures to contemporary secular Western structures, which have lost a lot of the breaks on interpersonal interactions, which were part of traditional society. Now, I first of all need to make it completely clear. I, I have to say, I am an extremely feminist person. <laughs> I am 100% committed to equal rights and opportunities for men, women, and any other gender identifying you know, labels that a person wants to put on themselves, 100%. But in traditional societies, there were all kinds of institutions which I'm not going to say that they protected women's rights, but they certainly created situations in which women were less vulnerable to harassment than women are today. And I'm going to say that just as a, as a general case. So, for example, in Orthodox Jewish tradition, there is this principle that an unmarried man and, and woman, let's say, you know, a man and a woman who are not m married or, or parent-child or brother-sister, whatever, shouldn't be alone in the same room together, you know, unchaperoned by other people. And somebody in Western society comes along and says, oh, come on, do you mean that, you know, a man and a woman can't sit in a room together and, you know, not be in some sort of sexual tension between them? Right? That's nonsense. That's benighted. That's old-fashioned. That's, oh, really? Yeah, and that's assuming that we are masters in our own house, right? That we have full control over the biological drives. And we don't. And we don't. And that's always going to be present. So rather than, than denying that and ignoring that, say, let's take this into account. Okay, we don't like the traditional way of solving that issue of uh, that women have to stay at home or or that you know you need to have chaperones all the time or something like that let's say let's say we don't like that but in those institutions there was actually a lot of insight about human nature and we've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater so right. to speak right we've we've you know sort of divested ourselves of institutions which had one set of problems but that's left us with a completely different set of problems we need to find a way to solve those problems so that women will be safe and secure, be able to grow and develop and, you know, fulfill themselves and, and achieve you know, the fullest extent and yet not be in a situation where they have to be concerned about. And, and by ignoring human nature, we're just making that worse. I agree. And I think what I'm hearing from your whole philosophy so far is really this sobering realism 
that I think is really good for us and that we live in a very, you know, willfully blind, very optimistic uh, world today. And this overly positive view of human nature um, has its risks, right? Also in what we can expect of ourselves, also what we can expect of others. And also we've kind of, we've given slack to the societal structures and what we expect from them and understanding that we need them kind of to to hold certain things in check. Yeah. Right. Because we're social animals, the social structures are exceptionally important for us. And that's something that we need to keep working on, using whatever additional insights we can get regarding human nature, human behavior, the biological basis of human behavior, of human behavior. But, but not only, also in our terms of our more sophisticated observations of how people interact with each other, hopefully we'll be able to use those insights in order to improve things. And this is not a message of despair. This is, this is a message of hope. And, and we can, I think, take this back to our original point of departure in free will and determinism. You know, it's really easy to confuse determinism with fatalism. Right. And people are taking a fatalistic view. You know, there's no sense in doing anything because it won't help, right? We're doomed to failure from the very beginning, and we might as well throw up our hands and just wail all the time. No, determinism is not fatalism. I think it needs a rebranding, I have to say, because determinism does, it, does, for me at least at first, before this conversation, elicited um, a fatalistic point of view, a kind of, you know, hands up, I, there's no point in trying, no point in, I, I have no control, so, you know, what, what is left? Yeah. Um, so this is where, you know, it's sort of maybe a little bit uh, naive sounding, but science to the rescue. And, <laughs> but really using the perspective of point of view objectivity, Right? Point of view objectivity says there isn't anything which is absolutely objective, but we can get an estimate of objectivity by taking multiple points of view and sort of triangulating a, a understanding of an aspect of human nature that we're trying to understand and hopefully improve, um, both on individual and a societal level. So we're saying, yes, we can do better than we're doing, but in order to do better, we need to jump up one level of, of introspection and take these multiple perspectives that can help us look around our blind spots. And I think, um, you know, I, I don't think it's naive to say na like science to the rescue in the sense that the scientific method has proven thus far that it can bring innovation and it has progressed society in so many different ways. And I think, you know, what, what's important to know is that the scientific method and empiricism is uh, is a system that can be fairly reliable, right, and bring us closer to objectivity. But we need to remember that um, the scientific method doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? We we humans, right, are constantly interacting with it, and our subjectivity can also color it. So, not to lose faith in the scientific method, and just understanding that we need to constantly check ourselves. And, um, and return to this point of objectivity. Yeah, I think that what we need to temper the uh, reliance on empiricism is a large dose of modesty. 
mm-hmm. and an understanding that even if the method is good, people are not going to get it right, not the first time and not the second time. But we need to keep trying and hopefully each time incrementally improve both our understanding of things and the way that we can use those insights in order to make things better and and uh, to be able to express the free will, which is, you know, again, in my way of looking at things, the complete expression of our entire nature in whatever decisions we're making in the most effective way by doing that in a society and in, in the context of institutions that enable the differences between individuals, which are a function of the combinatorial power of interaction between formative processes in such a way that creates a, a structure of human society which will be a thing of beauty. And that's something I'd dearly like to see. I, I would as well. So to conclude, I'd like for you to kind of... Um you know, looking back at our conversation, what would you want our listeners, if they were to take one thing away from our conversation today, what would you want it to be? So I would invite our listeners to consider the multiple sources of influence that have brought them to be who they are today. Uh, Just an awareness of this, of the power of temperament, of the strong influence of experience, to understand the processes by which those factors interact with each other, and to learn as much as they can about what science has discovered regarding these processes, and to think about how what they go through in daily life reflects these kind of impacts on them when they're trying to understand a unfortunate verbal exchange that they had with somebody who's very dear to them, when they're trying to understand why it is that once again they didn't keep their New Year's resolution to do more exercise or or be on a healthier diet or to find more time to call their mother or, or whatever. Like, why? Why has that happened? Well, take the biological perspective, the same one that enables us to understand the nature of determinism. And it's not enough to have that realization on a one-time basis. This is something, just like in the practice of mindfulness, where we need to dedicate time on a regular basis to introspecting and to understanding, not to ruminating on our failures, but to try to think about the things that we do and that we experience at the hands of others and to look at them in the light of what psychological science and neuroscience tells us about you know, human nature and human processes and to see whether we can use those insights to go one step forward to making tomorrow just a little bit better than today. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Daniel, for coming to speak with us today. It was really an inspiring conversation. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. To everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in to the Bigger Picture podcast. 
I hope you found this conversation interesting. You can find us on all podcasting platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. My name is Roni Firon. This is The Bigger Picture. Thank you for listening. Till next time.